All right, Matthew chapter 7. So Jesus is, I mean, this is, has been an epic sermon. That's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount, right? And um, as he's nearing the end, he's about ready to land the plane, so to speak. He has given some amazing instruction about exceeding righteousness. And I hope, I hope that uh, over the series, you've been picking up things that you can tuck away or just start to live and practice in your own life. Um, but here in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is kind of getting into his appeal mode, so to speak. If he had a pianist there, he might, you know, have someone playing some soft music behind him or whatever. But I imagine Jesus, as he's looking over the, the sea of faces, literally a sea of faces, I imagine that he sees wheels turning in people's minds. He sees that light bulbs have turned on, and then he also sees kind of the wrinkled forehead that says, whoa, but if this is true, then I must do that. You know, all these kinds of conclusions kind of firing away in their hearts and minds. And he realizes that as he is nearing the end of his, the sermon, people are in that valley of decision, so to speak. People are, are, are trying to decide, okay, so that's what it is to be in the kingdom. Okay, so that's what it is to follow you. Well, then... You know, and, and they're weighing things out, so to speak. And as Jesus sees this, he gets into some very, um, very strong appeals. And so there we are, Matthew chapter 7. I'm reading from the New King James Bible. And it says this in verse 13. It says, Enter the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. He's calling them, hey, hey, you guys see the destination? Now go for it, right? Um, in, in the ancient Near East, there were cities that people dwelled in. There were cities that people lived in, and those cities had walls around it. It wasn't just kind of like uh, you drive a street, and then you see this green sign that says city limit, Castle Rock, and then elevation 6202 or whatever. No, um, it, when you went into a city, you knew that you were going into the city because there was a very marked entrance, right? It wasn't just that you could enter in uh, through whatever way you choose. There was a city gate. And that was what Jesus was referring to. Enter that gate. You see the destination. Now go for it. There, there's a broad path that, that's around the city. But going into the city, that's just one way. And it's narrow. Uh, this, is a, this is another one in, in Israel here. And so you notice that you've got many options here. But eventually everyone's got to funnel. Everyone's got to funnel. There, there's a narrow gate here. And Jesus is using this appeal. Maybe it's getting late in the day. The people are wondering, hey, is the city gate still open? Because it would close. It would close at around sunset. And so they needed to, to make an effort. And so maybe people are looking over their shoulders. Is the city gate still open? And Jesus says, yeah, 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 yeah. The city gate is still open. And he means that in more than one way. And so notice what he says here about this. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way. Do you notice that, that Jesus is drawing some contrasts? And as, as he does this, he is asserting something about what it is to follow him. What it is to actually get there. What, notice the contrast. Okay, it's, it's a narrow gate uh, versus a wide gate. Uh, there, there's a broad way that leads to destruction and there are many who go by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to, what is the next word in your Bible? Leads to life, right? So first thing that we realize is, okay, it's, it's a life and death matter. Jesus paint, paints this, this entrance, this opportunity in terms of life and death. Hey, this thing about living the, the led life, this thing about following me, this thing about being part of the kingdom, it's not just a luxury. 
It's not just a suggestion. This is life and death, right? And Jesus says, okay, so there's, there's a, a path that leads to destruction. There's a path that leads to life. But notice also he says that, verse 14, but because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are how many who find it? There are few who find it. That's another contrast. Not just life and death, but it's few versus many. It's few versus many. In other words, uh, this, this lead life is not a popular life at times. Um, it, it goes against the grain of some of the cultural values that you see in the world around you, even the religious world that you may be familiar with. The lead life when it's about Jesus. It may be different even than religious men's opinions. And so this lead life, it goes against the grain of the world's values. It's countercultural, as you might say. It's at odds with the norms that we see on the screen that we hear in our workplaces, that we hear in our classrooms, etc. But the other thing that I realize is that it's not just about life and death. It's not just about whether it's popular or not. It's also whether we choose it or not. It's really interesting. If you look in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 13, there's a, a, the sermon is kind of uh, recorded in different places in the Gospel of Luke. And when Jesus makes this similar appeal, he uses a different word. He says, strive. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive. When you hear that word strive, what, what other words come to your mind? Or what other emotions or word pictures come to your mind? Work hard. Work hard. Try hard. Yeah. I, I, for some reason, I imagine sweat. <laughs> it's just like, it's, you, this is an effort, Right? Yeah, in fact, I think it's the NIV that says, make every effort to enter into the gate. In other words, it is not automatic. It must be deliberate. It must be intentional. People don't just land into the gate. People don't just fall into the kingdom. Like being a follower of Jesus doesn't just happen. Just because you show up doesn't mean... I mean, just because you show up at a gym doesn't mean that you're automatically fit, right? Just because you you walk onto a baseball field or a pitcher's mound doesn't mean that you're an all-star, right? Just because, you know, you grew up in a family that had Christian values doesn't mean that you are a follower of Jesus. It must be chosen. It must be striven for. It requires some effort. And I'll be honest with you, that this word, this word strive, it does imply some level of struggle. And to me, who, who, who loves convenience, <laughs> to someone who loves ease, that's kind of like a put-off, don't you think? I, I don't know, maybe, maybe this thought has crossed your mind. Why does it have to be so hard? Has that ever crossed your mind before? Why does following Jesus have to be so difficult? Can't we just, I mean, can it be easier? And I wonder at times if maybe the flip side we should be asking ourselves, is the alternative really that easy? Is not following Jesus really easy, quote-unquote? Um, there's actually a very interesting uh, statement here. Or, let, let me just uh, make this point. So we're, we're talking about the life that is led by God, and it strives for the kingdom. Let's see here. I think I have this. Yeah, okay. So I was reading this earlier this week, and this totally... Uh, kind of knocked me out for a little bit. It says this, uh, were it possible, were it possible to force, oh man, this is not the quote that I was thinking about. Sorry. Um, But I guess what what I'm trying to communicate here is that it's not automatic. It requires some effort. And 
I guess the key to this idea of striving is what kind of effort does it require? What kind of effort are we talking about? Um, the alternative, as we said, you know, it, it might appear easy, but in the end, it actually just leads to more pain and struggle. You know, the, the alternative of not following Jesus, of actually following the inclinations of our own hearts, it might appear to be easier because, hey, that's, that's just what everybody else is doing. That's just what I want to do right now, or at least what I feel like I want to do. But what if short-term convenience doesn't always lead to long-term benefit? And what if that easy route, that broad route of following your own inclinations actually ends up in more pain to yourself in the end? Not just to yourself, to those around you, your family, right? So then what makes it a struggle? What, what is it about the, the life that is following Jesus? What is it about that makes it require you to strive? I, I would say a few things. One, because self always gets in the way, <laughs> right? And, and we've been told that the battle against self is really the greatest battle that could ever be fought. The battle against self is the greatest battle that can ever be fought. So there are two things that I think that, that make this, this life of following Jesus a struggle. The first is ego. The second is your enemy. We all have an enemy. He's an adversary. He's an accuser of the brethren. His name is Satan. And that, that's the reality. There's a, a reality of resistance there's a, there's a power of darkness that when we, when we even set our sights on the gate, we say, yeah, that's, a, that's where I want to go. There are principalities and powers that flow against that decision. That's why it's a struggle. It's not because God arbitrarily made it, hey, 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 I want people to be here because they've fought to be here. No, no, no. It's not that he's trying to make it difficult. There's just the reality that there's spiritual warfare going on outside of us, but also inside of us. That's ego and the enemy. And so what, what are we to do if it really is a struggle? How do we then struggle towards the kingdom? How do we strive for the kingdom? And may I say this? It is simply a matter of placing our will on God's side. I don't know if that makes sense. It's not, it's not that we need to find some staircase and, and, and walk up that staircase on our knees. No. It's not that we need to um, whip ourselves into submission. No, no, no. It's about placing our will on the side of God's will. In fact, in Philippians 2, verse 13, actually, just uh, turn your Bibles there with me. So you're in Matthew. Go a little bit to the right. You'll pass the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's after the Corinthians that there's this little book called Philippians, P-H-I. Go Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. And I tell you what, this promise is a promise that I think um, we need to educate our minds to lean on. Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right? Philippians 2, verse 13. And the Bible says this, For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let me ask you a question. According to this verse, who is working? God. Okay? So when we're talking about struggling and striving, really the, the greatest battle, the greatest struggle is to let God do the work. Do you follow that? And, and this is the promise of God's word. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. And let, and let me just read verse 12, because I think that kind of highlights that even more. Therefore, my beloved brethren, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Whoa, whoa, Paul, Paul. Okay, okay. Now you're talking about working. All right? Now you're talking about sweating it out, grit it, grind. Okay? But how do we work? 
Verse 13, for it is God who works in you. What? So my work is to let God work. Okay, guys, this is like the essence of the gospel right here. Okay, my work is to let God work. If you've ever found the life of following Jesus a difficulty, it's because the greatest difficulty is letting God work. It's the battle against self. It's the greatest battle that was ever fought. That's why Paul, in 1 Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight of faith. What? That fight is not the fight against sin. Okay, you know? That fight is to believe that God can fight for you. That's why at the Red Sea, Moses says, whoa, 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 stop complaining. (laughs) You're not going to swim across that thing. I'm not going to swim you across that thing. Stand still. And watch the salvation of the Lord. That's what it is. That's what it is. Notice this. Okay, now to this quote. Were it possible to force upon you with a hundredfold greater intensity the influence of the Spirit of God, it would not make you a Christian. What? Wait, 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 wait. What's going on? There's something in the way of me letting God work. Even if God were to try a hundred times more to pour out his Holy Spirit, it would not make you a Christian. Why? A fit subject for heaven. The stronghold of Satan would not be broken. The what? The will must be placed on the side of God's will. My work is to let God work. Why is it a struggle? Because I don't want to give him my will. Woo! <laughs> Why is it hard? Because I don't want to surrender. My work is to let God work. You are not able of yourself to bring your purposes and desires and inclinations into submission to the will of God. We can't even surrender. I know I need to surrender, but I can't even do it. So then what do I do? But if you are willing to be made willing, God will accomplish the work for you. Can you thank the Lord today for the gospel? (laughs) I mean, that's the beauty of grace. That's the beauty of the Savior. Even if I'm not willing, but I know I should be willing, I can pray, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. So please, enable me by the grace of Christ to place my will on your side. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And so when he says this, hey, narrow is the gate, difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. There are few who are putting their will on the side of God's will. And so what do we do? We choose. Lord, I'm willing to be made willing. So striving, striving for the kingdom is, it first requires this, an intentional choice. And that intentional choice is to simply say, God, my will is on your side, okay? And I'm not even at that point right now. Maybe you're not, you're not feeling that. You're not fully ready to surrender. I said, God, I'm willing to be made willing. I'm surrendering to let you surrender or to, to let you give me submission. Are we following this today? Yeah? So striving for the kingdom, what does that mean? First, it means intentionally choosing to place your will on the side of God's will. All right, let's keep going. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. We're back in Matthew. Jesus, he sees the wheels turning. He sees people in that valley decision. Should I keep following? Do I really have what it takes? And then in verse 15, as they're weighing out this decision, he needs to kind of recognize that there are, there are competing voices around. And in verse 15, back in Matthew seven fifteen, it says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. 
Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their what? By their fruits, you will know them. Whoa, Jesus, you were just talking about gates and entering in and striving. Why talk about false prophets right here? Because here's the thing, people are at that point of decision. And a lot of times, I don't know if you're like me, but when you're at a point where you're trying to make an important decision in your life, um, I I don't know, you you try to seek counsel. Does this ever happen to you? You you try to look to the people that are around you and say, hey, what do you think? Or maybe if you're really public, you like to post it on Facebook and and get get some opinion polls and stuff like that going. But here's the thing, they they know that they're in this, or Jesus knows that they're in this value decision, and they're likely to say, hey, let me, let me ask my rabbi about that, you know? Let me ask this person about that. Let me ask this other spiritual influence in my life. And Jesus wants to give them this warning that when you're striving for the kingdom, it's okay. Yeah, yeah, feel free. I mean, the fact that he says beware of false prophets, messengers of God, etc., the implication is that there are true prophets, right? There, there must be some trustworthy voices around. And so in light of the apparent countercultural dynamics of the lead life, we may be prone to look to people who are still in line with the world's values and not God's values. And so he's just giving this, this, this heads up. Hey, beware. Beware of false prophets. In fact, they may be in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Again, just kind of highlighting, hey, there's a spiritual dynamic here. And, and things may not just be wrong. Things may be deadly. Okay? So when you're listening to these other voices, be discerning. Be discerning. And that's the other thing that I want us to get to, that striving for the kingdom means discerning truth. Striving for the kingdom, when you're intentionally choosing to place your will on God's side, it also requires you to be discerning about the truth or the untruth around you. It may not always be the whole story. Uh, and there's a, there's a certain overreaction. I think we can kind of develop a, a level of paranoia and just kind of uh, say, okay, I'm just going to shut out every other voice then, okay? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, it's just going to be me and my Bible, et cetera, et cetera. And I tell you, it, it should be you and your Bible. But it doesn't mean the fact, I mean, the, like we said earlier, the fact that he says there are false prophets means that there are true prophets around too. There are messengers, there are voices of truth around you. And so it, it should be our individual pursuit in the lead life, but we recognize that there's a community dynamic to the lead life. And there are others who can speak life into you. There are others who can speak truth about your experience. In fact, that's why, you know, when you look at the, the texts um, in the New Testament describing the body of Christ, one of the gifts of the Spirit is prophecy, Right? There are people who are going to speak truth into your life because God has led them to. Um, there, there are, in Proverbs 11, verse 14, it says, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Okay, so it doesn't mean that we ignore everyone's counsel. It just means that we're discerning about their counsel. Does that make sense? Yeah? So the question is, how do we discern then? How do we discern? Well, we've said it already. This this word is the revelation of who God is and his will. Okay, and we need to, to use this um, in order to filter any other voice, any other suggestion that comes our way. I mean, we see this in the Old Testament even. In Isaiah chapter 8, verse 20, uh, he's talking about these other proponents or prophets who, who claim to be prophets, but then he says this, to the law and to the testimony. In other words, uh, at Isaiah's point in history, it was according to the revealed word of God. 
to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because what? There's no light in them. All right? If you're wanting to discern false from true, it starts with being committed to the word of God. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, a New Testament example, there's a group of, of uh, Jewish individuals who are becoming believers, who are believing in the true Messiah in Berea. And it says that the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica, Paul, and I think it was Silas at that time, they had run into some major opposition. Like they just heard their message, their initial reaction was stone them, you know, that kind of thing. And, uh, but apparently the Bereans were a little bit different. They were more noble of character, of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. If you're wanting to discern true from false, it starts with the word of God. This is the antidote to deception, so to speak. But in, in, in the context of Matthew 7, Jesus actually points to something in addition to the word of God. In verse 16, he says, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. In other words, the results, right? The effect, the impact. Again, he says it in verse 20. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Okay, so I think we can look at the fruits in two different dynamics. The fruits of what they say. Does what this person says to me, does, does what this message that I'm hearing, does that actually increase my trust in God? Does it increase my love for God and desire to obey Him? Does it increase my desire to study God's Word? Or does it decrease it? Does it pull me away from doing what God wants, etc.? That, that should be, so the fruit or the impact of their words on your life, but maybe even this too, looking at their life and the context, not just of what they're saying, but what they're living by their fruits, the evidence that's found in their own lives. You shall know them. So it means looking at their lives in addition to listening to their words. When we're wanting to discern truth uh, about, you know, what I should do um, with my marriage or whatever, and I'm listening to someone who um, has never been married, then... There, there, there might be some, some discrepancy there, or at least not discrepancy, but just a, a little bit less credibility. Anyways, you, you, I'm not saying that this is absolutely true, but you kind of get the picture, right? If someone has no experience in this, or their experience has, um, whether it's school or education or career, uh, they, they have no experience with that. Their, their fruits don't demonstrate that I should listen to that. Same thing goes in our spiritual experience. Wow. They might be saying one thing, but are they living that too? And should I trust that voice? You know, um, and and really, what what this boils down to is authenticity. You know, there are people who walk or who talk a good talk, but their walk is completely absent. And I would say, before we move on from this about discerning truth, I would say that if striving for the kingdom is about discerning truth or requires discerning truth, I would say that. Striving for the kingdom requires us to deliver truth as well. That if we're going to hold people to this kind of standard where we want to see their walk match their talk, we, we ought to be committed to making sure that our walk matches our talk. Now, there's a personal application here that I think is very, very relevant. If we ever hope for people to listen to what we have to say, we, we need to realize that they're also watching for what our lives say too. People will listen, quote-unquote, much more to the fruit of our lives than the words of our mouths. The effectiveness of our message 
is directly related to the goodness of our fruit. So the question is, you know, obviously you're discerning truth. You want to discern people uh, for who they are, etc. But people are looking at you the very same way. And are you delivering what you've promised, so to speak? Are you bearing the kind of fruit that you're talking about? And I think this is actually, I was just looking this up um, earlier this week. The number one reason why people reject Christianity is because of a lack of authenticity. The lack of authenticity. I believe Christians ought to be the most transparent, most authentic people on this planet. We ought to bear the fruit that God, that God teaches us uh, to value. I mean, you think about the people that have influence in your lives. Think about the people that you trust. And those are people who walk their talk, right? Think about the, the person that you, you listen to their counsel and you realize, wait, why do I listen to their counsel? It's because of who they are. It's not just because of what they've said and how it makes sense, but it's because of who they are. Do you, do you follow that today? I mean, and this is what we ought to be to other people. Trustworthiness is considered the most important skill amongst leaders. And so if we, ever, if we ever hope to lead people to the kingdom, let's build trustworthiness. Let's build authenticity. All right, so striving for the kingdom, it requires intentional choice. Striving for the kingdom requires discerning truth. And here's the last one. Striving for the kingdom requires knowing God. Knowing God. Let's take a look back, to, back in Matthew. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 kind of this theme of genuineness. It kind of continues and it spills over into this, the last three verses here. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Wow. I tell you, this is, I mean, there are some pretty strong warnings in Scripture. Um, I mean, yeah, you look in Revelation, there are some pretty strong warnings in, in Revelation, but but to me, this is probably the most sobering warning in all of Scripture to me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. When people are saying, when Jesus is talking about people who call him Lord, Lord, they're people who profess to follow him, right? They're people who confess, saying, hey, wait, wait you're my master, I'm, I'm your follower, the things that you do, that's what I want to do. So that's why I call you Lord, Lord. But not everyone who says that actually does the will of his Father. The contrast to the confession and profession is the life. But he, that, that's the thing that Jesus is looking for. He's not just looking for the words of our mouth. He's looking for the context of our lives. Do we do the will of the Father in heaven? There's an active dynamic there that's evidenced in the life. You can't miss it. You can't, it's not just what you say. I am a Christian. No, no, no. What matters is, am I demonstrating that? There's an active dynamic. It's evidenced in the life. It's not self-driven. It's not self-initiated. It comes from a life that is surrendered. It's a, it comes from a life that has made that intentional choice to put my will on the side of God's will. And in verses 22 to 23, it breaks this down a little bit more. Okay, so we've got one class of people who say, Lord, Lord. And then there's another class of people who actually do the will of my Father in heaven. Okay? But in verses 22 and 23, let's, let's notice, he breaks this down even more. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Question, what else about this group that says Lord, Lord, do you know? They're not just saying Lord, Lord, they're actually doing stuff too, right? What kinds of stuff are they doing in verse 22? They're prophesying. They're casting out demons. They're doing many 
Miracles? Wait, 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 wait. Hey, Jesus, there's the active dynamic right there. They're doing stuff too. They're not just professing it. They're not just saying it with their lips. They're living a pretty powerful, potent life. They're demonstrating spiritual giftedness. What in the world is going on here? Apparently, the active dynamic that's evidenced in that life is something more, at least what Jesus is looking for, it's something more than just the miraculous things. Apparently, the the active dynamic of the led life is something more than just the wonders that we do or the things that we do in a showcase sort of manner that other people see in broad daylight. Even when there are miracles in the life, there may be something deeply missing. And what is that that's deeply missing in verse 23? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. The active dynamic that Jesus is looking for beyond the profession is not just how many miracles you can perform or how great things you can do for the kingdom of God, but whether we know him. And then he describes it even further. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness oh man this is heavy stuff so we need to understand one what does knowing god really look like and how is that related to lawlessness right what is knowing god and how does not knowing god equate to or relate to lawlessness here's what we need to understand first knowing god is the essence of eternal life knowing god is an implication or indication it's pointing out the highlight the 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 powerful dynamic of having a relationship with god john 17 verse 3 now this is eternal life jesus is putting it almost like in, in a chemistry equation sort of form right eternal life equals what this is eternal life that they may know you the only true god and jesus christ whom you have sent. No, 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 not just know about. I know a lot about, okay, so growing up in California, don't hate me for this, Dave. I grew up a Lakers fan, right? So I know a lot about Magic Johns. I know a lot about Kobe Bryant, et cetera, et cetera. doesn't mean I show up at their doorstep and I'm like, hey, what's up, bud? You know? No, no, I don't know him. I may know about him. But when Jesus is talking about knowing God, It's not just knowing about him and, okay, he created, he did this, he has this characteristic and that. It's actually knowing him in personal acquaintance and relationship. And somehow this this experience of knowing God has to drive everything we do as individuals and as a church. You coming to church, this isn't about just warming up a chair. It's about knowing God. You opening up your word in the morning is not just about doing a routine in the morning. It's about knowing someone who knows you and loves you with an everlasting love. What you do for work, your career, it's not just, it's not just you know, something to, to, to pad your wallet or whatever, pay the bills. No, that ought to be an expression of how God has known you and lifted you and empowered you to serve this world. Knowing God has to be central to everything we are and do as individuals. And I would submit even more, this also has to be what drives and compels us as a church. We're not just trying to keep people's calendars busy. We're trying to help people know God. Why? Because it's eternal life to know Him. It's eternal life to know Him. Each event, each experience has to be about knowing the true God. And if it's not, then why do it? If it's not helping me know Him, if it's not allowing me to help others know Him, why do it, right? Because outside of that, we're, we're delving into this life, not eternal life. 
And the implication here is that there's a false picture that must be distinguished to know God from things that present God but really don't enable us to know him. That's why, you know, things like reimagining God, uh, having small groups, doing Bible studies, even maintaining doctrinal distinctives. Why is that important? Why? Because doctrinal distinctives say something about the God that we're pursuing. And if, if everybody's belief is just the same, um, then, then that's great. But what if distinctions in belief about God actually lead me to know a different God? Does that make sense? I know it's kind of strong. But the reality is that there's a spiritual dynamic where there are false prophets around. Why would, why would the devil enlist false prophets? Why? Because he knows that life eternal is knowing God. And if I can present a false picture of God, Satan says, then they're not knowing God and they're missing out on eternal life. Wow. And so I would just humbly submit that we can't water down doctrine and distinctives if, in fact, each doctrine is a revelation of Jesus. You know? But if there are doctrines that aren't a revelation of Jesus, why have those? <laughs> okay? I mean, the Sabbath, that's a beautiful doctrine, but it's not just about having the right day. It's a doctrine that demonstrates that Jesus is the creator and he's the redeemer and he's the one that makes you holy and not you yourselves. That's why we hang on to that doctrine. The doctrine of the state of the dead, why, why do we hang on to that? I mean, I mean we, that doesn't even pertain to our present experience and stuff, or does it? And does it demonstrate... I, I think, Man, I mean, I could just go on for, for a while on this, but I think that the, the devil tries to do something with even the, the uh, immortal, immortality of the soul, that, that, that suggestion, the natural immortality of the soul. I think he tries to undermine that you can actually have life apart from Jesus. But the truth of it, that we sleep when we die, demonstrates that there's only life in Jesus. Does that, does that make sense? Amen. These distinctives are important. They're not something to water down and be embarrassed about. They're distinctives that help us to know Jesus. And if we're going to keep that from people, then we're keeping them from eternal life. So, so back to this. Jesus says, hey, I never knew you. I never knew you. I, I haven't come into a personal relationship. And so then he says this, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So how in the world does not knowing God equate to or lead to lawlessness? It's interesting. In 1 John 2, verse 3, John actually, again, he makes this very apparent. Now by this we know that we know him. <laughs> Uh, follow that. Doesn't, it's, he's not like circular thinking here. By this we know, this is how we recognize that we are in a knowing relationship with God. If we, if we keep his commandments. How do you know that someone is married? By the way that they live faithfully to their vows. You follow that? How do you know? How do you know if someone knows God? By the way he or she lives faithfully to his vows. That's the beauty there. And if, if, if lawlessness, or if, if, if the law of God is really fulfilled or summarized, as we read last week in, in Matthew 7, verse 12, uh, therefore whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, that golden rule. If, if the law of God is summarized in loving God and loving others, <clears throat> then lawlessness that he's talking about, hey, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is talking about lovelessness. 
they haven't known God, and because they haven't known God, they haven't loved God. And if they haven't loved God, they have no idea what love looks like. So it goes back to the golden rule as a summary of that sermon. God wants to see his love reproduced in our lives. God wants us to know him so we can receive love and give love to. He wants to see this not just in the miraculous, right? He wants to see this in the simple. He wants us to reproduce this love, not so much in the extraordinary, but in the regular and the normal rhythms of our lives. So here we are, striving for the kingdom. As we've looked at just these nine, ten verses or so, it, it requires intentional choice. It requires discerning truth and delivering truth, right? It requires knowing God, not just knowing about him. And not just knowing God in the miraculous, uh, spectacular ways, but knowing him, revealing him in the simple, in the ordinary ways. So what do we take away from this? The life that's led by God strives for the kingdom. The question today is, how are you going to strive for the kingdom? In these three simple ways, I don't know, maybe you yourself find yourself in a valley of decision. Maybe you're new to this idea of faith, and you're wondering, man, do I even want to enter into this journey? Maybe you're seasoned in the faith. You know, you've been around the block, so to speak. The question is, do you want to continue in that? I mean, don't just assume that you're going to roll right into that. You know, I mean, this, this is a journey that you must choose every single day. That's why Paul says, I die daily, right? It was his choice, his intentional choice every single day. So for those of us who are new to this, for those of us who have been around, the, the next steps are really just to pursue God. Go ahead. Strive already, right? Now, don't, don't, don't allow assumptions or the routine of things to kind of carry you along. Uh, the current of life is too strong. It will take you downriver. It will. So strive. Strive to value or to, to intentionally choose. Strive to discern truth and strive to know Jesus. Today, Maybe you're feeling like this striving dynamic is not within your reach. And I want to say amen and amen. (laughs) This striving thing is not in our power, but it is in Jesus' power. And so today is a response song to this. We're going to, Bernice and Debbie are going to lead out for us the hymn, Jesus Paid It All. And so can we just stand together just to recognize, you know what, I am weak, but he is strong. Jesus has paid it all.